good, everyone? Welcome back to the Bucks Film Room Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sampson, and you can find me on Twitter at Bucks Film Room. I write about the Milwaukee Bucks for Brewhub and Forbes Sports. And it's been a long-ass time since we've done one of these podcasts, so I'm excited to get back into the groove. We'll do these every Thursday. Beginning today, it's a Thursday, and we'll keep going moving forward. This pod, which, like I said, is coming out on Thursdays, is going to be part of the Brew Hoop or is part of the Brew Hoop podcast. So you can find me under that channel when looking on iTunes, Spotify, etc. So with the Bucks coming back out of the All-Star break, I thought it would be a good time for the Bucks Film Room podcast to come back coming out of the All-Star break. Milwaukee, they take on the Detroit Pistons tonight in Detroit, and... Their schedule gets a little hairy here coming up in February and then in March. And so I'm excited to see how they respond against all these good teams. You know, there's been a lot of chatter about the Bucks' schedule or lack thereof of strength of schedule. So this will be really interesting to see how they respond against some really good teams here coming up. For today, though... Uh, I thought we'd take some time just to answer some of your questions and do a little bit of a mailbag. I had reached out on Twitter to you guys for some questions, and so I figured that's where we'd start, you know, with the Pistons game. I'm not too worried about that. There's not too much to preview and break down. Um, the 76ers, who the Bucks play on Saturday, that will be a real doozy. That'll be a really fun one to watch. And so I'll have some thoughts next week about what that looked like and just kind of get into the strategy that each of the teams used or will use um, and how that played out. But for today, I thought we'd do a little bit of a mailbag. So our first question comes from Chris O. Larson on Twitter, at Chris O. Larson. And he actually has three of them. So the first one is, will Bledsoe play well in the playoffs this year? I think that's a question that's on everyone's mind. Bledsoe is actually having, you know, a, a pretty good season, even though his points per game is the lowest since what is third year in the league. Um, and his field goal percentage has dipped a little bit from last season, but you know, he's made some tweaks. I think the biggest thing is he made a little tweak to his shot. Uh, Eric name of the athletic did a great article profiling this a while back. So make sure that you check it out. Um, and one of the tweaks that he made is just a, a small one. You know, at this point in players' career, when they've had thousands of thousands of hundreds of thousands of repetition, repetitions, you don't want to be making structural or major changes to their shot. But one thing that he did was just putting the ball in his palm upon release. So sometimes shooters, a lot of shooters, will go up to like the tips of their fingers right before release. But he's just keeping that ball back in the palm a little bit more and a little bit longer. And that's helped him. You know, he's shooting just about 34% from downtown this season, which is up a whole point from last year. Uh, but I think most notably is his free throw shooting. He's making 82.8% of his free throws as well, which is a pretty substantial change from a year ago. And so I think just that subtle change has helped him. And, and his confidence seems seems to be a little bit higher when it comes to those those threes and different parts like that. And so we'll really see, you know, that's just what it comes down to. Bledsoe has the talent, he has the ability, but and his teammates believe in him, but he doesn't believe in himself. And so that's really what it's going to come down to is can he 
go into the playoffs with confidence and can he maintain that confident level that confidence level in the playoffs you know he just gets into his own head he's thinking way too much he doubts himself way too much so that'll be really interesting to see is how how does he handle that how can he stay out of his own head I mean there are going to be games you're going up against the best competition in the world there are going to be games where you just don't play well or shots aren't falling you know that's going to happen but can he stop the snowball from getting bigger and bigger and bigger can he stop it at a snowball instead of an avalanche you know can he stop it at one bad game or one under below average game and so I think that'll just be the real question is that confidence level and can he can he do that can he just keep it going can he keep attacking the rim you know of all the bucks one of the 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 biggest deficits when they lost Malcolm Brogdon was that dropped them down to just two players who can get to the basket on their own. So Eric Bledsoe and Giannis are the only two Bucks who can get to the basket on their own, and they need Bledsoe to be engaged. His defense isn't to the level that it was last year. That's not saying that he's not a very good defensive player, because he is, but he's just not an elite defensive player. I don't think he'll make a first team or an all-NBA first team defensive team this year. But he's still a good defensive player, but he's also a player, one of only two, who can attack the rim off the bounce. So it'll be interesting to see if he can stay out of his own head when it comes to that. The next question that we have from Chris O'Larson is about Marvin Williams' role going forward. And he asks, will he absorb Ursan's playing time? And I think that's a hard question because although they both play the same position, they have such different games, you know. Ursan is more of a, a plotting power forward. He can stretch the floor. He's he's shooting 37% from downtown this year, which is the best that he's had in a while. Um, and that's still just a little bit better than average, but as a power forward, you know, he brings that, that other power forward out of the paint. He provides spacing. Defensively, he's taken a little bit of a step back this year. Um, you can tell that age is starting to catch up to him a little bit. He's a little bit slower laterally, um, but he's still adequate defender. You know, he's played well for most of the season, which I think some people miss. Is Ursan has played well. He's dependable. He's reliable, and and he's a Mike Boonholzer guy through and through. So you know he's not gonna you know send Ursan to the bench very easily. I could see Ursan, you know, having a depending on the matchups, having a little bit more of a diminished role because we've seen Ursan struggle with athletic power forwards. You know, there's been games where other teams have just targeted him, whether it be in the pick and roll, whether it be an off-ball action. You know, they want to get him moving. They want to test his lateral ability. And a lot of times he's failed those tests. So I could see in instances like that where Marvin Williams then comes in. Marvin is a little bit more athletic. I should say a good deal more athletic he works hard you know both guys are veterans both guys just want to play their role and be a part of a championship team at this point you know so I don't think that they're going to have any issues kind of playing the matchups there, going back and forth but it'll be interesting to see how Boonholzer does that because there's not enough minutes to go around for both guys to adequately play um I mean Ursan is already only averaging 16 minutes a game so if you're even going to split that, that's eight minutes per guy. Like, I don't know if that works. And unless Boonholzer is going to do something different at center, like take away some of Robin Lopez's minutes. But again, that's not a huge number. And so I think there'll just be times just playing the matchups uh, to see what that looks like for each guy moving forward. Because um, they each bring something different, which 
I think is what John Horst, the gen- the Bucks general manager, has tried really hard to do is just provide positional versatility for Budenholzer. Last year at the deadline, he traded for Nikola Mirtich. Now that blew up horribly in the Bucks' face, but nobody knew that going in. Nobody knew that Mirtich, one of the one of the better shooters in the NBA, whether it be from way deep, on the move, spot up, whatever, nobody knew that he wasn't going to be able to hit anything, but Horse acquired him to provide more flexibility at that position and on the on the court. And so like the same thought process is going in with Marvin Williams is he he will help the Bucks match up with different teams, whether it be the gluttony of forwards that the Boston Celtics have or the Clippers have, um, or maybe even some of the bigger teams like the 76ers. Maybe that's where Ursan would come in because he's a little bit stronger and girthier. Um, that word sounded weird. But uh, I think just overall, like, it, it gives Boonholzer different options to throw out there. Maybe Ursan goes into a slump or maybe Marvin goes into a slump. Then he can rely on the other guy. And so it's hard to predict exactly what that will look like, but I think Boonholzer will just play the matchups. He's got two now very, very reliable players and behind Giannis at the power forward. And, and don't forget that Sterling Brown as well um, has played a little bit of small ball four and has been a little bit of a spark. Now, I don't think... Boonholzer would go to that in the playoffs at all, but I think that that presents just another option that he has. All right, Chris's third and final question. Will Middleton continue to play at a high level into the playoffs when things slow down? I I don't think that we have any reason to believe that he won't. You know, Middleton's game out of any Bucks player is probably best suited when things slow down. Right now, you know, that's where he does most of his work is in the half court. I mean, he's he's fine, I guess, in transition, but he's not one of their main cogs like Giannis or like Bledsoe in transition. And so when things slow down, I think he's going to have to continue to play at this high level. He he has a lot of moves. He's got a bag, as we'll talk about later. Um, he's got a lot of nice moves in the half court where he can really just take his guy, take his time, know do his stuff off the bounce in the post off on the perimeter wherever and so I think that they really will need him and he's played pretty well the last two postseasons I mean yeah he struggled in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Raptors but it's it's hard to blame him you know they just had so much defensive talent so much length there that a lot of bucks if not all bucks struggled but I think overall Middleton's game is well suited for the postseason and 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 he's playing phenomenally you know his true shooting percentage his effective field goal percentage they're through the roof right now they're his true shooting percentage is the highest of his career. I think the same can be said for his effective field goal percentage. Um, and so he just is getting to his spots, getting to the post if there's a low, if there's a smaller guy on him, um, getting getting up top if there's a bigger guy on him. And so just whatever he wants, um, wherever he wants. And yes, his effective field goal percentage is the highest of his career. And so that combines twos and threes. And then you know make sure that it accommodates that threes are worth one point more and kind of puts those together. And so I think that he has a really good chance of playing into this high level of the playoffs. And when things slow down, his game really is best suited for that. All right, sticking with Chris Middleton, but moving to a different questioner. This one comes from at J underscore Frederick 9097. This person asks, how strong of a case does Chris Middleton have for all NBA? I think this is a great question and something that we should dive into here. So just so we're all on the same page, 
All-NBA, there are three teams, and the positional makeup of the three teams is one center, two forwards, and two guards. I know, it's outdated, but that means that there are six spots available at forward, which is Chris Middleton, which is a position Chris Middleton plays. And so, ahead of him for sure, we have Giannis, LeBron, AD, I, I don't know if he'll be a forward or center, you know, on the Lakers, he plays mostly forward, so... I guess for this conversation, we'll put him in at forward, Kawhi Leonard. So that is four players that are probably locks for one of the top two teams. Um, we'll put Luka Doncic. Don, we'll put Luka as a guard here. Um, so that really leaves Chris Middleton, Pascal Siakam, Jimmy Butler, and Jason Tatum for two spots. We'll say, and so that'll that'll be tough. Um, We'll see how this works out. So Pascal Siakam, he was the all-star starter. He got in over Middleton. I've talked a little bit about how that might not be as deserved as we thought. Siakam had a great start to the year, but he really cooled down afterward, and Middleton has just been solid since he returned from his injury. And so I think that statistically Middleton has, you know, a really good shot against guys like Pascal Siakam, Jimmy Butler, and Jason Tatum. And it just really depends. Like per game minutes, no, he might not because Middleton is playing 29 and a half minutes a game. All these other guys are playing at least 34. So when you add that five extra minutes, of course, their raw stats are going to look better. And so that's why I like to go to the per 36 because sure, it, it assumes that Middleton could continue his production against with higher minutes but we have with Middleton specifically his track record shows us that we have no reason to believe he couldn't continue that so I like to use per 36 minutes to even out that playing field and so if we do it that way Middleton averages more points per 36 minutes than the other three when it comes to rebounds per 36 minutes he's second only to Siakam when it comes to assists he's second only to Jimmy Butler Middleton averages the well, I guess he averages um, the highest, well, he has the highest field goal percentage of all of them. He has the highest three-point percentage of all of them. He has the highest true shooting percentage of all of them. And so I think when you start to add all that stuff up, it, it looks pretty good in Chris Middleton's case. And then even given that he's playing on the NBA's best team, like that's that's a pretty strong case that he has there. I, I think a lot of it will depend on how things go down the stretch here. We still have, what, like two months of basketball left until the playoffs. And so a lot of it will just depend on how much the Bucks need Chris Middleton moving forward. You know, with the six and a half game lead in the Eastern Conference, they might be coasting the last month or so of the season. So that'll be interesting. I would say, I would say no, he does not make the team. I think there's just a, such a strong push for how great Pascal Siakam has been and how great Jason Tatum has been with this Boston team. And both guys deserve a ton of credit. Like Siakam, the the step that he has taken from being like a second or third, probably like third option last year on the Raptors to now maybe like 1A or 1B, that's a huge step, and that's hard to do. So even though his efficiency has dropped, that's still such a hard step to take. You know, defenses are now game planning around him every night instead of Kawhi and Lowry. Um, and so now defenses are game planning around him. So I think that's one of the toughest steps to take. Tatum, you know, he's taken a nice step forward as well in his play. And so it's hard to blame voters for putting one of those two guys in there. I think if Chris Middleton, though, if he keeps playing, 
if he keeps playing at this level, it's going to be hard to keep him out of this. It's going to really be hard to, you know, say that he's not deserving. I, I think that he's played at such a high level. He's part of one of the best teams in the NBA that he's really had such a terrific season. And so I hope that he can, you know, continue that. And I hope that, you know, he continues to make a strong case and at least make voters think twice. All right, we have another question from Jay Frederick. And Jay Frederick asks, just how historically great is the defense? How have other dominant regular season defenses translated over to the playoffs? So for starters, the Bucks' defensive rating of 101.9 is the best in the NBA this season and the best since the 2015-16 season when I believe both the um, Spurs and the Hawks had better defensive ratings than that. But I don't think that the that Milwaukee is going to get much hype for being a historically great defense. They've been very good, better than last year when they had the best defensive rating, but I don't think that they necessarily have a historically great defense. Um, a couple of things is, is Milwaukee is very good. You know, they play so fast that it's it's hard to, when you play as fast as they do, to maintain this great of a defense. Um, and if they played a little bit slower, the defense rating would likely be lower because it'd give them more time to set up their to set up their defense and give them more time. You know, they wouldn't be as worn out pushing the ball up and down the floor every possession. And so I think that's just something to note is that um, if they had had, if they've, could save more energy for defense, it would be greater. I'm not saying that they should do that by any means. They're What they're doing is working. Keep doing that. But just trying to point out the fact that it's hard to have the best defensive rating in the NBA and also be one of the fastest teams in the NBA as well. I think overall, Milwaukee, they aren't a flashy defense. They just play solid. You know, they rank 24th in opponents' turnovers per 100 possessions. And so they're not out here forcing tons of steals, you know, forcing defenses into a ton of miscues and then just pushing the ball off those and getting flashy dunks and things like that. They just constantly play their assignments, whether it be from guards to wings to centers, whoever. They just play such solid assignment defense, and that's stuff that's harder to notice. You know, they just force teams into the shots that they want teams to take. They force teams into their own stuff, and so that's that's harder to notice. Uh, they do block a lot of shots, you know, with Brook Lopez and Giannis on the floor. They block a, a lot of shots, but overall, they're just not a flashy defense. And so I don't think Milwaukee is going to get any love for being historic unless they do something very over the top. As far as how it translates to the playoffs, I think that it'll translate very well. Milwaukee is very good in the half court when it comes to defense and their ability to continue to just lock teams down and funnel them into Brook Lopez, funnel them into the spots on the floor where they want to go. I think that's so valuable. And that's why, you know, they're on pace for 70 wins because even though they have a really good offense, their defense can show up every single night. You know, unless there's going to be one of those outlier shooting nights that is talked about it where the team's going to make 38, 40, 42% of their threes. I think that Milwaukee will be just fine and that will translate over the playoffs. They'll be able to lean on that if, for instance, Giannis or the offense gets bogged down in the half court. They can always rely on their defense. That will always be there. And so I think that's really what makes them such a great team and why I think they'll have a lot of success in the postseason is because they have that defense to rely on. All right, last question here from Jay Frederick, and then we'll move on to somebody else. Jay Frederick asks, have you seen enough growth in the diversity of the offense to be confident that we won't see another prolonged drought come playoff time? 
This is a hard question to answer, I think, because it's really, you know, Milwaukee has just cruised through this uh, regular season once again, um, and that just makes it more difficult to assess the diversity of their offense. I think that I don't know if the diversity of their offenses is or was necessarily an issue. I mean, last year when the Raptors locked them down, they only shot 31% from the three. And so if you start making just, you're even closer to 32, 33, they, they win some of those games. Um, and so I think that just might, what it might be what it comes down to. And they added shooters, you know, they added Wes Matthews, they added Kyle Korver. Now they've added Marvin Williams. Dante DiVincenzo is inadequate and okay shooter. And so they've added guys that, you know, they just hope that they don't, have four guys going to a slump again from downtown and as far as diversifying their offense I I think that they have different options that they can go to Um, and Budenholzer has talked about being willing more willing to adjust quicker that was an issue that has been an issue I think throughout his career Um, and in Milwaukee is that he just takes too long to make adjustments you know and it's hard to blame him with the Bucks because they're so dominant that Usually, 90% of the time, if not more, his stuff that he runs is going to win out in the long haul. And so it's hard to fault him for that. But in the postseason, the margin for error is so slim. And so I think we'll see him, you know, making adjustments more. We saw it in the Philadelphia game, the second Philadelphia game after Milwaukee got blown out by the 76ers on Christmas. Budenholzer came back with a a little bit of a different game plan uh, the second time, and it worked. Um, And so I think we'll see him adjust more often. And you know, just hopefully that with Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe playing so well, I think they just need to step up too and, and come to the come to the plate, especially Bledsoe. You know, he provides some of that diversity with a different player that can also draw the defense's attention down low and either score down there where he's really good or kick it out. And so they just need their players to show up and play as well, which is half of it. All right, moving on to, I think, which will be our last question from at Josh Hushin, H-U-S-H-O-N. Josh says, isn't the obvious question, what's in Giannis's bag? So just a little background, Josh, Josh asked this question because some blue check mark tweeted out something about Giannis not having a bag and he only plays bully ball and that won't work in the playoffs. Um, just so we're all clear in layman terms, uh, when he's, when this dude says bag, um, he means that he doesn't think Giannis has an established like go-to moves or moves off the dribble that he can rely on, um, in the half court. So moves like MJ's fadeaway or Dirk's one footer, you know, things like that, where guys have certain moves that they've crafted it, that they've worked on over the years that they can go to, um, to create their own shot. And so this, um, not Josh, but this other blue check mark thinks that um, Giannis only plays bully ball and that it won't work in the playoffs. So to be fair, this criticism, I guess, isn't completely off base, but it's still wrong. Um, Giannis, I mean, we've seen him in the playoffs. We know that his style works in the playoffs. He's played very well um, until he met the Raptors and they sent they had Kawhi, one of the best, if not the best defender in the world on him, plus two, three other all defensive caliber players on the court, always honing in on him. And so, I mean, that's not, everyone's going to struggle if, if that's, if you got Kawhi on you face to face, and then you got Pascal Siakam and Marcus Gasol always lurking, you know, in those driving lanes, of course, somebody's not going to be scoring 30 points a game like Giannis was previously. But I think that Giannis 
has a number of moves that he can go to and that he does go to. You know, I think in the open court, we see him doing his Euro step. We see him in the half court doing where he'll dribble, take a couple dribbles to his left and then spin back to his right and throw it down or lay it in. He, in the post, he can do a fade. He can do the up and under based on the fade. He's been working on that righty hook that he likes a lot. And so when you start to add it up, you know, he's got some moves. Um, Sure, none of these are really established as like go-to moves like some of the really great players some of the all-time great players have but I think that's okay Giannis is young he's still working on them he realizes this he talked about it last year is that maybe he needed a little bit of a mid-range shot Um, he needed something that he can go to but So I think he's working on that. That'll come. He's 25 years old. That'll come. But also his bully ball, nobody can stop that. Nobody one-on-one can stop that. So why not go to that? Why can't that be a part of his bag? When you're stronger and quicker and bigger than the guys guarding you, why wouldn't you constantly attack those lanes until somebody can stop you? I mean, that's a move as well. That is part of his bag, whether people want to agree or not. That is a move in and of itself. And just because it doesn't look pretty, just because he's not crossing over or fading, like if you can't stop it, then that that's your fault. And why wouldn't he continue to go back to it and go back to it and go back to it until somebody can consistently stop it? So I think, you know, that's just stuff that he can that he can rely on. He's working on other things. He's developing his game in other areas. He knows he knows that he isn't quite there yet. I mean, he said last year he's what 60, I think, percent of his potential. And so this is part of that reaching his full potential. And he understands that probably better than anyone. And he's working on that on a regular basis. So I think that is something that, you know, he'll continue to get better at and really just comes down to Teams are going to load up on him in the playoffs. He's going to get his, but also he needs to rely on his teammates. Milwaukee as a team can't shoot 31% from downtown for an entire six-game series again. You know, you're not going to win many series shooting 31% from the outside. And so he needs to get his, he will, and rely on his teammates to do their own thing as well. All right, folks. Well, that's all that I have today. Thank you all for tuning in to the return episode of the Bucks Film Room podcast. We will be back next Thursday, so I hope to see you guys then. <laughs>